that EV, the one you just bought, maybe the one you just test drove, it handled great, didn't it? Not really. Like, it's just different, dude, and profoundly so. The brain-bleeding beer garden physics of which is next. John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Do inquire at the website in respect of that, won't you? Or click the card on screen now. But first, before we get into the bleeding from our ears in that educational way properly, a message that orbits the free shit that I will give to you before Christmas, at least three of you, and we might do that back at the Fat Cave. From time to time, it certainly does suck to be him. You know, out there now on the road, it's 45 degrees C today. As <laughs> with a hurricane, tornado, whatever. Nice, dry, dusty hurricane blowing as well. So, <laughs> Straya! Anywho, much nicer here in the Fat Cave. Astute viewers of this excellent, if somewhat highbrow, channel will note that my last pre-recorded package was on these awesome... Olight torches. That's mm, painful. All I can see is purple now. <laughs> Just like the 70s. And Olight got back to me, okay, during the week, and they want to give away three of these little Warrior Mini flashlights. They're a great everyday carry item. They fit in your pocket, and they're rechargeable and tough and waterproof and all that stuff, and they're good for all kinds of flashlighty stuff. Oddly enough, you can watch the review by clicking the card on screen now, and because I have infinite patience, I will wait. These flashlights, of course, are about 40% off right now, Black Friday sale, but if you miss the tail end of that because you don't watch every video immediately upon upload or something, I don't know why, it ends on the 30th anyway. Just use the link and the code in the description below and you will still save 10%. And yes, I will earn a commission, but you will save 10% also, which seems fair. Those flashlights are great. And if you want to win one, there's a question right at the end of this report. You have to be subscribed to the channel and answer it in the comments, and I will choose the best three answers. I will announce those winners during the week, and that'll be in my very next upload. So stay tuned for that. Hit the bell notification icon so you don't miss it. And then if you are the winner, you can DM me on the Twitters, perhaps, with your details privately. I will tell Olight, and Olight's going to send them out to you. Your very own free, mighty warrior mini. Mini friggin' lightsaber. Yes! Just great for eliciting information from someone you can't stand. There's that. Now, EVs, handling kinematics and beer garden physics, like proper ghetto physics. <laughs> it's not a lazy afternoon in the hot tub with a bunch of Ming moles, but it's close. This report is rated 
EBGPBB for Extreme Beer Garden Physics Brain Bleed and also FGPHKN for Full Ghetto Propeller Head Kinematics Nerd. That's not funny. So, stuff your ears with Tampax now. We're going in. I guess the place to start here is with the H word, which would be handling. And it's such a broad topic, okay, because people always write to me and they say, well, how does that handle? And I always say, dude, what are you talking about? Are we talking about just driving normally? How does it feel? Or are we talking about getting to the limit of adhesion and how does it feel? See, most drivers get behind the wheel of a car and if they don't crash all the time, then they kind of understand that there's a limit out there. It's out there somewhere and hopefully it's a long way away from where you're driving now. You've got plenty of safety margin, right? And you care about handling like when you drive around a bend, how does it feel? Is there a lot of body roll? Is there not much body roll? And, and just generally, what do the dynamics feel like, like well back from the limit? And that's how most people drive. And there's another class of driver who I would categorise as a performance nutcase, which I fall into that group, frankly. And, you know, you can just get behind the wheel of a car, take it to the limit and assess how it feels when it gets close and when you go slightly over the limit and you're sliding a little bit and what's the transition like and all of that stuff. And that's handling as well, right? But they're vastly different things to vastly different people. And I'd suggest that if you're in the first group and you drive an EV, you're probably going, <laughs> this handles really nice. And if you're in the second group, you're going... Not really, it kind of feels okay a bit, you know? And this is not a hit piece on EVs, right? This is, let's drill down into what is the difference between them. And there are some profound differences, okay? So, with the appropriate device for jamming the point home, I guess the place to start is with grip and friction, which are not the same thing, but I guess most of us went to school and if you remain conscious during science classes for most of the second half of high school, there will have been one fateful day when you did friction. And the practical application of this is if you've ever had to nudge something heavy across the floor and it's not on rollers, you've dealt with friction in a practical way. So you've got something, it's sitting on the floor, it's got weight, and you need to push it by a certain amount to overcome the interaction between the something and the floor. And the interaction uses this deformed U-shaped thing from the Greek alphabet called mu for the coefficient of friction. That's just how physics rolls, okay? And the interaction is that the push equals mu times the weight and then you overcome the coefficient of friction and you get the thing moving. And the first wrinkle here that might just start to bleed a little bit is that there's two coefficients of friction. And you've felt this. Trust me, you've felt it. And you've seen it too if you've ever watched a crash test. So there's a static coefficient of friction, which is like when the thing's sitting there on the floor and it's not moving relative to the floor, that's the amount of push you need to stump up to get it moving. And then you've probably noticed, if you've done too much of this stuff, that when it's actually moving, it's kind of easier to push. It doesn't seem to require as much of a push. That's because there's a kinematic or moving coefficient of friction, and the kinematic coefficient of friction is slightly less than the static coefficient of friction. And you see it the other way as well, right? When you see a car that's sliding, okay, or it's just in the final throes of its crash test or something, if it is sliding at the end, then when it comes to rest, you see the dummies' heads or the people's heads, if it's on a racetrack, whatever, they sort of go like this. 
right, there's this reaction when it's not a smooth transition to stopped is what I'm saying because when you transition to stopped, mu jumps up from kinematic to static again and the grip on the road gets much harder right at the end and that means it's not a smooth transition to stopped for most materials. Sometimes it is like ice on ice with water in between, that's a pretty smooth transition but rubber on concrete, not so much. All right, so... Just to put it in perspective, all right, steel on steel, it kind of depends on the details, but between 0.2 and 0.5. So let's say it's nice clean steel on nice clean steel, it's about 0.5. So if you've got 100 kilos of steel sitting on the floor, then you're going to have to push with about 50 kilos to get it moving. That's what the 0.5 means, okay? And if it's lubricated steel, like this matters for things like railways. I was an engineer in the railways really early in my career, and one of my jobs was kind of figuring out whether or not some non-approved loads could be approved as a one-off for particular jobs, right? And we always used 0.2 as the coefficient of friction because they lubricate the rails with grease on the curves to minimise the wear on the flanges of the wheels, right? So 0.2 was our go-to coefficient of friction for figuring out whether or not the locomotives could stump up the tractive effort to, call, to pull these uh, non-approved loads, right? So st steel on steel with graphite, and steel on steel with light oil. So you can see what a difference light oil makes, okay? If you've got 100 kilos of steel on steel on the floor, you're gonna to have to push it with like 50 kilos. But if you can get oil underneath it, it's only like 10 kilos. And oil is essentially what makes your engine goes round without blowing up. And this is why, right? Because the amount of resistance is cut by like 80% with light oil, and that's basically the job of all of that oil in your transmission and your engine. It reduces this coefficient of friction here where the gears mesh each other to about this coefficient of friction. It actually also separates the materials entirely because of a really thin, tough film that forms between them. But, and it prevents the wear that's associated with this kind of motion as opposed to that kind of motion. And graphite's even better, incidentally, you know, it cuts uh, the friction even more, slightly at least, you know, to almost half, like it's not insignificant. And that's really cool because graphite particles actually attract molecular water out of the air, okay? And they basically coat the particles of graphite. So if you put powdered graphite on your fingers and you do that, what you feel is the water on water rubbing, right? Because the water sort of bonds to the graphite and it's only water brushing across water. And that's what makes it so slippery. Except, of course, if you <laughs> lubricate the hinges of a spacecraft like that, that doesn't work that well because the water just evaporates off into the vacuum and it leaves you with really abrasive graphite particles in the hinges. And then when you open the door, the door kind of welds itself open and you radio back to mission control and you say, yeah, this door, we don't seem to be able to close it. That actually happened on one of the manned, uh, first manned missions. You can read the history of that. It's quite funny if you weren't in the spacecraft at the time. Rubber on the road, about 0.9. If you're wondering what happens when it rains, then that drops to about 0.6. So you lose about between a quarter and a third of the grip. And the reason I'm saying between a quarter and a third is because define road and define wet. You know, you can have concrete roads and you can have bitumen roads and they can be coarse chip or that hot mix stuff, right? So there's all kinds of variations of road and there's all kinds of variations of wet from just like misted a little bit to torrential, you know, build an arc rain. So 
Anyway, you lose a substantial amount of grip. And what this means, okay, point nine, let's say you've got a two-ton vehicle, 2,000 kilos of vehicle. That means that in a corner, it can exert a maximum of about 1,800 kilos of lateral push to get itself around the corner, or 1.8 kilos of reverse thrust to break, okay? And there's just no more in the tank after that because 0.9. And obviously if it rains, you're down to 0.6. So you'd be down to 1,200 kilos of sort of reactive thrust to throw you around uh, laterally or longitudinally. It also plays into acceleration, obviously, on a drag strip. Wood on masonry is about 0.6, so it's about the same as, you know, your car in the wet. And rubber on rubber is about 1.2, so we could get a shitload more grip out of cars if we just went out and made the road out of rubber wouldn't last as long. The trucks would, you know, just eat it up. But while it lasted, it'd be pretty friggin' grippy. And of course, a wax ski on snow. If you've ever felt that, you can't eliminate the friction because then you wouldn't be able to remain upright or exert control. But it's about 0.2, which incidentally is about the same as locomotives pulling really, really heavy things up these grades on various parts of track somewhere. So with that in mind, for perspective on how friction works, okay, it's important to realise that grip is not friction because friction is just a material property. There's no coefficient in this equation for area, right? And when you look down at those four contact patches, they are area-based, okay? And so what I've got, the question I've got for you is how come wider tyres grip the road better if friction is independent of area? Riddle me that. So part two of the wide world of grip, okay? Wider tyres are definitely better. This is a matter of common experience. Go and look at a BMW M car compared to the base model in the same range. Go and have a look at AMG, whatever. Have a look at a GT2 or GT3 911 Porsche. They've got wheels like this, tyres like this at the back, right? And they wouldn't have them that wide if area didn't matter, because clearly it does. So what happens, okay, you've got this tread block here and it's gonna interact with the road. As it rolls forward and makes contact, what happens? Okay, what happens is you've got all this weight slamming down onto the tread block and you've got this cornering force that's about to be imposed if you're going around a corner at the time. And the reason it's not just a friction scenario is because rubber is flexible. And when it's got weight on it, it starts to conform to the irregularity of the road surface. And that leads to like a meshing in, like a micro-mechanical interlocking phenomenon that creates a sort of sheer resistance like this to being thrust laterally. And that's what grip is. Grip is the combination of friction, which is a property of the two materials, the road and the rubber, and micro-interlocking giving you this shear resistance as well. And the shear resistance is why wider is better. Because if you've got enough mass of vehicle and the rubber is sufficiently soft, then you can make a lot more rubber interact and interlock with the road. And that gives you more grip for braking and acceleration and cornering, which is the only three things that cars ever do dynamically when they remain in contact with the road at least. All right, so... The micro-interlocking depends on the load, so the mass of the car matters, and the dynamic loads matter as well, 
It depends on the material and the shape of the road. Is it that real coarse chip stuff or is it hot mix or concrete? And what are the nature of the surface irregularities that we're trying to conform to? It depends on the area in contact and it depends on the stiffness of the rubber, which is why softer, grippier tyres wear out quicker. Okay, because everything's a trade-off in design. And the interesting thing about tires is that they're really easy to use, okay? But they're super complex devices from an engineering point of view. Material science, engineering, all that stuff. Tires are extremely advanced components. And what I gotta say to you there is if everything else is equal, the wider tires are gonna grip the road better. That's a matter of common experience. And grip is two things, two. <laughs> things it's two things beer garden physics i love it it's two things it's friction plus mechanical interlocking which leads us inevitably to ev handling issue number one which is that they all roll on eco tires like low rolling resistance tires and there are implications there for all other aspects of dynamic performance so the fundamental design problem that they face with EVs is we've got to maximise the range because the range is going to sell the car. Like 500 k sounds better than 300, right? And 300 sounds a whole lot better than 120, okay? So they pull out all of the stops to maximise the range. And the sort of stuff you can do is you can keep putting a bigger and bigger and bigger battery in, although you've got to have the real estate for that and it's going to add heaps of mass or you can look at targeting other places in an engineering sense where you can get incremental gains. And one of those is rolling resistance. If you wanna get your head around rolling resistance, it's like push your vehicle across the workshop floor, okay? It's not easy. And there is a little bit of brake drag in that and there's probably a little bit of resistance in the bearings and stuff like that. But you're mainly overcoming the resistance of the tires to rolling forward, which is exactly what rolling resistance is. And you seem to think, I guess, that when you're driving down the road at some mundane speed around town, like 60 k's an hour, which is like 35 miles an hour, okay, when you're doing that, it's smooth, right? It's almost inconsequential and it's soporific and all of those things, right? 60 k's an hour. I want you to imagine the living hell of being a tyre, all right? Like, specifically, let's imagine like a differential wafer of tyre, like a really thin slice of cross-sectional tyre like this, okay? And if it's doing 60 k's an hour, that's like 17 metres a second, and a tyre's about two and a bit metres in circumference. So we're really talking about eight revolutions per second, right? So our little differential wafer has got 400 kilos or something a vehicle sitting on top of it slamming it down into the road like every time 400 kilos eight times a second smashing it into the road okay that's not pleasant like it's not pleasant being a tire it's okay riding on tires it's certainly better than riding on solid wheels or something of that nature but it's just not pleasant being a tire and Obviously, the tyre deforms, and you can just check out every parked car you ever walked past. You know, the tyre is deformed at the bottom owing to the static load of the car above it, right? So it goes from unloaded and sort of uncompressed in this rough blue shape to roughly like this red shape when it's compressed. And it does that over and over and over like the jackhammer from hell while ever the car is turning and burning. 
all right? So hysteresis is a big, scary word that makes most people's ears bleed. And it's kind of a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics, which is hard to get around. And the second law just says that every time you do a process, you lose some available energy, okay? And, and you can't get access to it ever again in a closed system that doesn't allow the uh, egress or ingress of energy into the system. So if we put a box around our differential wafer of tyre here and we don't allow energy in or out, but we just allow it to roll backwards and forwards, what you find is if you graph loading versus unloading, like loading goes like this and unloading goes like that. And this is force, like weight, if you like. And this is like deflection on this axis, from minimal deflection to maximum deflection and minimum force unloaded to maximum load on the tyre, up here like that. And energy is like the mathematical integral of both of these curves. So the loading energy is the area under the red bit and the unloading uh, energy is the area under the green bit, all right? So if you take one from the other, the red area from the green area, you end up with this shaded bit in the middle, which is the energy you lose, thanks very friggin' much second law of thermodynamics, which is called hysteresis, okay? You can't get that back. And essentially, that's what rolling resistance is. It's this lost amount of energy here. So eco-tyres, which is kind of where we started, tyres are such high-tech things. When they want to target rolling resistance, they prioritise that. And other aspects of performance of tyres is diminished because it's a balancing act, right? And what happens is they use a lot of silica, generally, in the rubber particularly in the rubber that's in contact with the road and doing the maximum flexing because it doesn't suffer as much of a hysteresis problem, right? So the red curve and the green curve get closer together. It doesn't eliminate hysteresis because that's impossible unless you make the tyre perfectly rigid, which would be like, what's the point? Okay, so it just reduces the hysteresis, reduces the rolling resistance, and therefore reduces the amount of energy coming out of the battery to overcome rolling resistance. And if you do that, then you can expend that energy extending the range to deliver more range, all right? But there are compromises with eco tyres when you do that. And one of those compromises is that grip just takes a hit. So you're not gonna feel that if you just do a test drive around the block with a dealer next to you or something. But if you suddenly turn into a corner a little bit faster than you intended, it's much easier to get to the limit of adhesion. You get, you get there quicker in an EV than you would with a comparable car with better sort of performance-oriented tyres on it. Same difference if you're swerving around a kangaroo or a child because then you've got to make the car violently change direction to avoid crashing. And then, kind of important, you've got to recover control and get back on track before you snot a tree or a power pole or an oncoming vehicle. That's a real priority. Once you've avoided disaster the first time, you've got to avoid disaster number two, right? And eco tyres are frankly not the best tool in the shed for doing that. Okay, so DIY EVs. Let's talk about one of these fundamental things with EVs, which is how do you make an EV? 
And if you're a car maker, let's put Tesla to one side here because they just make EVs. Almost every other car manufacturer making EVs says, well, how do I do that? And the obvious way to do it is to start with a platform you've already got, which means one that's designed for internal combustion. And I'm kind of familiar with the Kona now, having clocked up like 7,000 Ks or something in EV mode. And this is exactly what Hyundai's done there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Although I'd have to say there's a certain degree of non-ideality about converting an internal combustion engine platform into an EV, which is essentially what the rest of this chat is going to be about. So let's get up in a drone now, all right, and look down on top of the platform, okay, and like take a cross-sectional slice horizontally through the platform and look at what they've done in gross sort of mass-related terms. And I'm sorry about this noise, but... Uh, it's a really hot day today and there's uh, bushfire risk and I guess that's what Black Hawk Down going on over here is all about. So if the garage fills up with smoke and I just leave you to it, you'll know what that's all happening, you know. It could be just bushfire emergency, I don't know. Anyway, so here's your Kona looking down from the drone, looking down from the Black Hawk. And what have they done? They've taken about 250 kilos of internal combustion components out of it, right? And they've put in about 450 kilos of battery. And the net change in the mass of the vehicle is 200 kilograms. But you can see that the distribution of those masses is really different, okay? It's profoundly different. So much lighter at the front, much heavier at the back. And you can imagine driving the Podger from hell straight through the centre of the car here, between in the centre between the four wheels, right? That's roughly where the car yours as it changes direction when you go around a bend or anything else. You want to make it your like that, it's going to pivot around this point. And obviously, the mass at the front is going to make a big difference compared with the mass at the back. And what's going to happen with the internal combustion Kona is that the mass at the front is going to make it push or understeer a little bit. And the mass at the back here, when you convert it to an EV, is going to make it much more likely to oversteer or, you know, get wide with the tail first, get a bit tail happy. So changing the masses like this really does impact the dynamic performance, right? And what it means is that you're much more likely to go back, back first off the track, okay? Black hook down again you're much more likely to go back first off the road in an emergency. And there are countermeasures that can be deployed to ameliorate that, like they can change the programming of the electronic stability control. But that's sort of an inferior way of doing it because, frankly, what you're trying to do is design the platform from the ground up to do what you want so that the countermeasures are more holistically imposed and less like band-aids afterwards. And this is the problem with all EVs that are designed on internal combustion platforms. It's the non-ideal location of the mass distribution, right? So from a horizontal handling point of view, it really does affect the your performance, but they can compensate with that with the stability control. You just need to be aware of it because in the worst possible situation, on an off-camber bend, loaded up the wrong way with a bit too much lock and, you know, lifting off, dramatic lift off and maybe get a bit of regen braking, throwing the weight forward, the rear wheels unload, it's gonna make EVs tail happy and there's really nothing that you can do about that in the moment and it could catch you unawares. 
if you're looking for the 24 karat guaranteed brain bleed in this, let's call it lecture, then modal separation, that'll do it. This is a Tampax repack right now, just preemptively, okay? Before we get into that, we're gonna talk about what the car looks like when you look at it from the back or the front like this, the roads down here, these are the tires. And we're looking at a transverse cross section, like you take the chainsaw and you just go lightsaber and you just go straight through the car in between the wheels, between the front seat and the back seat and cut a transverse slice through it and have a look at where the masses are, okay? And what basically happens here is the 250 kilos have come out all the internal combustion stuff that you can chuck, and 450 kilos have gone in, okay? So the centre of gravity, the mass centre, whatever you want to call it, the mass centroid of the vehicle has dropped to turn it into an EV. Here's your mass centre for your internal combustion. Here's your mass centre for your EV. And if you want to think about what is a mass centre, it just means where can I consider all of the mass of the vehicle is located just from a physics point of view. You know, forget about the shape of the vehicle and all that. All of its mass is concentrated there when you want to look at forces acting upon it, like inertial forces, accelerative forces, whatever, okay, attractive forces. It all acts kind of through the mass centre. So a lower mass centre. And then there's another kind of centre that you've got to think about as well, like Jesus, of course, welcome to my world. It's the roll centre, okay? And when you think about a roll centre, when the car goes like this, you know, you, go, you make it go around a left-hand bend, it's going to turn this way. It's going to rotate this way. The inertial force is going to kind of push it away from the corner. What's really happening is it's just going straight ahead and you're forcing it to go this way and it kind of wants to keep going straight ahead, so it resists a little bit, okay? And that makes sense, okay? And that rotation happens around a point like this, the roll centre. And the roll centre is typically about that far off the deck in most cars. It's six to eight inches off the deck in most cars. In some cars it might only be four inches, but ballpark, six to eight. So just about at the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the floor, let's call it. Okay, so you think about that. You've got all the forces acting through one of these mass centres and then the rotation is happening about here. So it's just like using a spanner. Right? You use a spanner, you put the load here, you get a certain amount of deflection. Yeah? That makes sense. And when you change the mass centre, what you're doing is, with the Kona EV, you're making the car a little bit heavier, but you're making the spanner a little bit shorter. Right? That makes sense. Yeah? So you've got the same roll centre, but you're using a shorter spanner, a little bit more load. You're not going to get nearly as much roll. And that's why EVs feel so damn flat in the corners. It's because the mass centre has dropped relative to the roll centre. And this is not all good. It's all good just for driving around normally. It actually makes the car feel pretty zippy, okay? But in extremis, it's not necessarily that good because some degree of body roll is good for the driver, it tells the driver, hey, we're cornering quite a bit now, might want to back off. And it also sort of deflects the mass centre over this way so that it can load up the outside tyre, which is the one doing all the work. If you were to eliminate the uh, roll entirely, you'd kind of just be smearing the tyres laterally across the road surface, which is not as good as loading up the outside one a bit more, okay? And the other problem, which really is modal separation time, okay, so 
just, I'm warning you, you might want to look away now. Modal separation is because we've got these two different modes, okay? We've got a roll mode for the car where it rotates about the roll center. And you can think about it like this. The roll center is like, there's a point, an elevation at which if you apply a load like this to the car, it's not going to roll. Okay, and if you're a propeller head and you've got all the engineering diagrams, you can calculate the instantaneous roll center based on the suspension geometry, all right? But if you're not that propeller head, it's just, we're going to push here and it's not going to roll. Whereas if we push here or we push here, we're going to induce roll and the question is just how much, okay? In any given corner, Internal combustion kona is going to roll more than electric kona. And sometimes electric kona is going to feel better, but right at the limit, I'd suggest internal combustion kona is going to feel better. Okay? And the reason for this is in part modal separation. So you've got roll mode, right? Turning corners, body responding like this, and you've got bouncy mode, like vertical mode for the suspension. And Interestingly enough, those two modes are controlled by the same components. Springs, dampers, bushes, things like that, okay? And what you do is, when you're designing a car from the ground up, you say, well, what's the mass distribution of all the components? Where's the mass centroid of the body? Where's the mass centroid of the engine and gearbox and drive system for the front? And where's the mass centroid of everything else? And then you can figure all of that out. And then you can work out the mounting points on the platform and the length of the control arms and all of this stuff using proper mathematics, not like ghetto physics that we're doing here. I'm talking like proper number crunching computer shit, okay? And you can design the roll center to reduce the amount of separation between the two modes and make it easy to get good sort of response in bouncy mode and rolling mode using the one set of components. But when you go and do something like put 450 kilos down on almost the roll center, then what you're doing is you grossly increase the separation between those two modes. And every time you tweak springs, dampers and bushes to increase roll performance and make the car roll a bit more like the, com the combustion engine one, what you're gonna do is you're gonna make it even floppier in bump, right, in bouncy mode. And if you make it really stiff, like adequately stiff in bouncy mode, you're gonna make it overly stiff in roll mode, which is so not ideal every time it rains because you do want even more roll when it rains because it just makes the car more predictable, right? So there's all of this, and this is a fundamental compromise, right? You've got vertical mode versus roll mode. Which one are we gonna prioritize? And I'll tell you right now, I'll bet the friggin' farm what they've done with the Kona EV is they've prioritized stiffness in roll, okay? Because it's really stiff in roll and it's therefore adequate in bouncy mode, okay? It's kind of really stiff in roll. And you feel that like when you go around a corner, it's easy to lift up the inside wheel and spin it at about 30 k's an hour. If you hammer it up the hill, turning a corner like that, it's easy to spin the wheels because it's stiff in roll. And if you look at a different sort of vehicle, and the best example I can think of there is the Shitbox EQC from our friend's three-pronged suppository, okay? What they've done there, if you read every review that's ever been written about EQC, they'll all talk about how floaty the ride is and how soft the ride is. 
It's because they've prioritised getting the role performance that they want. And bouncy mode has therefore taken a hit. And this can only be cured if you move to EV platform specific models. Like we're going to start from the ground up and design a platform for an EV and it's going to have 450 kilos of battery down there at about this height. So we really need to think about moving the roll centre down so that we don't increase the separation between bouncy mode and rolling mode. And that's really what this is about, okay? So I hope you're not bleeding from the ears at this point, but it's important to realize this if you step into an EV, one of these early generation EVs derived from an internal combustion car, because you need to know how it rolls. You need to know how it rolls at the limit. You need to know how it rolls when you're just driving it normally. So just to sum this up, okay? If you are motivated to buy an EV, and I'd say, yeah, look, there's some good reasons to do that. And it doesn't have to all be objectively justifiable. You might just want one. And that's fair enough too, because people buy shit all the time that they really don't need. You know, there's no objective case for a Omega Speedmaster professional watch or a Lady Dior handbag or any of those things, a set of, you know, Dior shoes. Nobody needs that shit. Okay, people buy them all the time, though, and they pay a lot of money for them because it makes them feel good. And that's fair enough. But there are objective cases for EVs. You could think about air quality in our cities and do your bit there, energy security for the nation. You could also think about it in terms of going off the grid if you've got your own solar array. That makes sense as well to me. And yes, you will pay over the odds for it. But hey, it'll make you feel good. When you test drive that car, or if you own one now, and you've been trying to get to the bottom of why they handle differently, it's these things, okay? They're grip limited by the uh, tyres, by the eco tyres. And I would so love, and I think I might put the bite on Hyundai for this, I would so love to get a set of really grippy tyres, like normal road performance tyres, and just put them on the Kona EV and see what sort of a hit do you take with the range, and what sort of a boost do you get in the cornering performance and also the braking performance, right? That'd be interesting because if it's less than 10% in the range, like 45Ks or something, I'd cop that on the chin if there was much better grip in, in offer, on offer, okay? That to me, that would be worthwhile. Like, sign me up. I'd just like to try it and see if there aren't any horrible negative feedback effects as well. So... The other thing you'd want to be careful about is tail happiness on the limit. Although I tell you that there would be uh, significant effort being put into the countermeasures in terms of the programming of the stability control system and things of that nature to prevent EVs from just backing off the road by the dozen. Okay, And clearly that's not happening, so the countermeasures are working. But still, there is a mass distribution thing here that makes this a less than ideal scenario. Okay, And number three, like I just said, they're either going to be too stiff in roll or too soft in bump and rebound, or they're going to be all of those things. And this, too stiff in roll, actually feels really good on the test drive until it rains and the road gets really slippery and it doesn't feel good at all, okay? So you need good roll performance for everyday driving and good bouncy mode performance as well. And it's almost impossible to achieve that on a platform derived from internal combustion. So the other thing is to realise that this is not just about the Kona EV, this is about every 
EV that is derived from internal combustion. There is a fundamental compromise in play between roll centre and centre of mass, okay? And there's nothing that anyone can do about that. So essentially, I'm really looking forward to EV-specific platforms because if I go out there now and I pop the bonnet of the Kona EV and I look around, there's all this extra space, okay? And if I look at an internal combustion version, there's none of that extra space because the packaging is quite efficient. But when I look at the EV and I pop the bonnet and I go, look at all this wasted space, wasted space, free space, that could be devoted in a more efficient sense if I had complete free reign with the podger to redesign it. I could get more cabin space. You know, I could move the wheels a bit. I could do whatever to make the whole thing more ideal. So the same size vehicle will get more cabin space with an EV-specific platform. And the other thing is there's no room for the battery in the Kona EV. They bolted it to the floor, okay? So it's kind of down there and it's a bit of an afterthought, bolted on afterwards. I'm not suggesting it's badly integrated. It's not. It's a really sophisticated piece of design and very robust. And I've seen one apart on the floor and it's extremely impressive from the point of view of its internal design and the cooling and all of that stuff. But it is bolted on as an afterthought. It's almost like a hot rod in that respect. So when they put EV-specific platforms in place, they're going to get the masses in the right location and they're going to have the hard points for the uh, suspension and all of those things that they really need to get the fundamentals right. And the next generation of EVs is therefore going to be so exciting, not so much from a range and performance point of view, but from a dynamics point of view, because they'll do something that contemporary EVs today derive from internal combustion cars cannot do, which is they're going to feel great in vertical mode, and they're going to feel great in roll mode, and they're going to feel great just tooling around the suburbs, and they're going to feel great on the limit. So in that respect, I just say, bring it. So I guess the critical question here to you, my free flashlight aspiring friend, is describe modal separation in the comments in 50 words or less. And the best three answers are going to get a free Olight Warrior Mini. The Ming Moles and I will debate on this long and hard as always, in the hot tub, and I do expect considerable friction while we, let's call it, uh, debate. When that happens, the considerable friction, I always spray the affected, uh, let's call them parts, with 2020 FO, liberally. Or, of course, in extreme situations when the, uh, let's call it, job is more demanding than usual, I use Trefilex HD. The thick fluid sticks to the tool, and that's always nice. Irrespective, I expect some pushback on the final decision. None of this will be taken lightly, however, but in the end, we will work it out. We always do. Pro tip, the best answers to this illuminating question are potentially not the most technically accurate, so get creative. What is modal separation? Let me know. Let's see what you've got down there. Do this for me and help make Australia less shit as your next Prime Minister of the People's Democratic Republic of Incrementally Less Shitsville. Let's see you do your bit in the comments below in 
the national interest.